Bacon. Don't skip through this ad. Bacon. We all love it. I know you do. Don't lie to yourself. You know you love it. United Harvest is looking for the best bacon in the world. Legitimately. They're on a mission to find the best bacon in the entire world that they can get to their customers. If you think you know of the best bacon, or if you raise pigs that, and you think your cured bacon is the best, shoot me an email. Brown at baramedia.com United Harvest is legitimately looking for a bacon outlet. Somebody that they can distribute for the highest quality bacon. UnitedHarvest.com This is the show with Cannon Brown. Several of the judges went to dinner after a show one night, and one of our exhibitor friends came with us. And we sat around doing what we do, which is tell judging stories. You know, talk about rabbits we saw that day. Talk about, you know, old stories, things that we've learned from other people. You know, just just BS for a while. And our exhibitor friend was really quiet. And then, you know, we got to the point where we're like, yeah, yeah, we should probably go and stop camping out at this table. And we looked around for our server because, you know, they hadn't been by with a check. And she just smiled and said, I paid for everyone. I enjoyed this so much. I just wanted to thank you guys. And I thought, wow, you know, I I had no idea that was so interesting to people. And and so that kind of, you know, sparked a little something. And I went to some other shows and watched people, you know, just enjoy sitting with the judges at lunch and telling those stories. So I thought there's there's got to be a way to to tell these stories. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? Welcome back to another wonderful week of podcasts. This is the show with Cannon Brown, and I'm your host, Cannon Brown. Yes, yes, hello. I have a wonderful episode for you guys today. Wonderful. And some of you might be looking at the description and the title and be like, what, what is this going to be about? It's a rabbit? It's going to be about a rabbit podcast? I don't know if I want any any part of this. But listen, it's very interesting, okay? And this is someone, someone uh, from just strictly a livestock background. I don't really have any knowledge of small stock things. It's pretty interesting how this industry runs and, and the correlations between other show industries as well. Alan Mesnick and Bryony Smith are hosting a brand new podcast called Best in Show. Um, these two people are industry leaders uh, in the Rabbit Association, the American Rabbit Association. Um, and you'll hear throughout the interview, they, pay a, they play a large part in the organization of uh, the industry, basically, and how it's run and what it's doing and, and what publications they're sending out. It's very interesting. It's, it's a lot different from the way I know it, being from a livestock background, but still interesting nonetheless. Um, so yeah, welcome back. Uh, I'm excited to um, kind of get back to a normal schedule. Uh, check out Legendary Mindset. Check out Cattle Pros. Check out The Keeper Pin. Check out Best in Show. Uh, and uh, check out unitedharvest.com. Yeah, that's that's enough of me talking. Let's do it, Mr. Alan Mesnick and Mrs. Briny Smith. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Uh, have you guys heard a lot of things about the feedback from 
best in show. Yes. Um, we're getting a lot of people saying they really enjoy it. I turned it on and I went out to clean my barn or actually one of our ARBA district directors messaged me yesterday and said, I've never listened to a podcast before, but this is great. and We really like it. Yeah, I'm getting the same thing. Good. People are, are so excited. They think it's just timely, as we said from the get-go, that when we all can't be together, this is a, you know, you come from a livestock side, Canon, the, the rabbit side is different. They're not totally different, but we really function as a unit. And I, and we really crave that being together thing. So this has been a wonderful way to connect people at a time when we feel disconnected the most. Yeah. It seems like the Raven industry is a little closer in some characteristics than uh, the live, the livestock industry from what you guys have said in your interviews that I've listened to at least. Well, yeah, I come from um, a livestock. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Brandy. I was going to say, I think part of that is because when we show an animal, we put it on a table and step back and talk with our friends. You know, we're not out in the ring by ourselves with our animal, just concentrating on that. I never thought about that, but that's a good point. I think the other thing is the way our association is set up where livestock, you may have, um, you may have like a, a Holstein club or Hereford club or an Angus club, but there isn't one parent organization which oversees all breeds of cattle or even all breeds of dairy cattle, all breeds of beef cattle, where all 50 breeds of rabbits and 13 breeds of cavies are under one parent organization, the ARBA. So, um, and then we have that annual convention every year. So there's a, a timed event every year where everyone gets together, regardless of what breed between both species you have uh, to get together. So it's just been kind of ingrained in us from, I think an association side as well. It's very all inclusive. I feel like, and I'm, I'm kind of jealous. I mean, on the outside looking in, I mean, you guys have to know, Alan, you come from a livestock side, as you said, it's the rabbits are like, they're not really in the same realm as the livestock people, even at a show. Like they kind of just keep to themselves each, like each of the communities. Same with like the um, the chicken people or the poultry people. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not gonna like. Well, I'm just gonna say it. That's what's given us the name and reputation we have amongst livestock people that we're weird and, um, <laughs> you know, kind of fringy. Um, and you know what? If that's how we're taken, I think that that's okay. I mean, it actually has benefited us greatly that we have that community. But I think. It, when we step in the livestock side, I mean, when I go to a livestock show where I'm doing my, I mean, I have Angora goats, like, come on, it's not really like competitive market lambs or anything, but, um, so it's just as fringy. I get it from both sides and I, and I get teased on the, from, you know, when I go to a livestock show for my Angora goats and I'm like, oh, by the way, guys, I've got rabbits too, you know, <laughs> let's, let's just go out there. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I think it's worked for, to our benefit and, and, but the, the rabbit people I think do tend to get together if they're at a livestock event you know some of these big shows like houston or we used to have the great western livestock show here or the cow palace show where they include all species of animals including the rabbit portion the rabbit people do stick themselves and i think that it's a safe zone because we know how we're (laughs) we're perceived on the uh, you know from from the outside but we're still very proud of what we do and I didn't mean that for that to come off as me oh, saying that would be fine. We're we've got thick skin, and we we all. Oh no, no, we get it. I mean, like everything rolls downhill. You know, I lived in Arkansas for a while. They make fun of Alabama there. In Kansas, we make fun of, of Arkansas. Course. You know, we make fun of cat shows. Um, <laughs> if someone comes with like all this foo foo stuff, where the rabbits are like, "Oh my god, this is not a cat show." Um, <laughs> yeah, the playpen, but, right? Yeah, <laughs> the cover is better than the next guy. Right, but bottom line, we all raise 
animals. We love animals and we show animals. Yeah. We love to perfect them. So we're really not that different. We still, uh, compared to the, the bigger society out there, which doesn't know a damn thing about livestock <laughs> or showing any kind of animals, we still speak a very similar language. Maybe just a different yeah. accent. Now, every time I- I've told a couple people about your guys' podcast, like, hey, I'm producing a, a, a new podcast. It's about rabbits. And I've talked to my livestock friends about this. And they're like, rabbits, really? And I just have to say one thing. And then they're like, oh, wow. And it's one thing that I picked up from your guys' first episode. Or maybe it was your second, where you just said, yeah, there's 20,000 rabbits at your national convention. I just have to say that one thing to somebody saying, you're producing a rabbit podcast? And then they're just like, oh, okay, it makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's bigger than you think. Seems like a, it seems like a crazy number to me. It is crazy. You yeah. should, you, you, I, I hope that you get to a chance, now that you're involved in, in this, like it or not, <laughs> you get a chance to walk into one of these conventions, especially one in the Midwest where it's just mind-blowing. And if you have to, I mean, we work that showroom for five days when we are at these conventions, whether we're judging or showing, and not everything is always next to each other. I mean, we are worn out by the end of every day. And by the end of the five days, we're like, poof, because this room is a very big convention center style setting. And there are rabbits from front to back and KBs as well, but mostly rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. 20,000 is big. That's huge. That's huge. When, um, when do you guys think you'll have another national convention? This fall. Okay. Well, that's I'm, not I'm, bad. I'm pretty confident it's going to happen. Um, vaccines are going on. COVID restrictions are easing up. Um, the RHD, we may still have some people that aren't able to come because of the hot zones. Um, there may be some contention about that, um, but I'm pretty confident we're going to be able to have convention this year. And that's the other thing about a rabbit show. I mean, and it's the same like with cattle shows and things like that. You have a lot of animals in the building, but people are still fairly well able to space out most of the time. Very good point. Yeah, that, that is very fair, actually. And and that, we've seen that at livestock shows that have kind of carried on and other events that have carried on as well. I mean, we, we can spread out people pretty decent. Well, um, yeah, we've, we've spent a year and a half doing this now. And by the time convention rolls around in October, when it's scheduled to, we've all become used to spacing out. We get it. Like, things will not happen if we don't abide by these rules. So you know, we're a hell or high water kind of people. And we were really, uh, I would say abrasive to it in the beginning, but people are wearing masks at show now. They're, they're stepping back. There's, we did a podcast that was released yesterday or with Jason Karwaski. And he explained that to put these shows on in Minnesota, people have to be basically outside. They can't be hovering over the judging table. There's going to be a judge plus the max of two people. They're helping to run the table, but not exhibitors, you know, flocking and congregating next to the table. So we get it. And people are, are, are really have been really good about, um, taking action because they know if we don't, we're not going to be there together. Yeah. I think that by October, it's even going to be even more so uh, in that regard. And we're still going to terrorize the fire marshals with all of our crap <laughs> in the showroom. <laughs> yeah. That will never go away. COVID or not. Yeah. That's, that's a constant thing that, you know, get these chairs and grooming tables out of the aisle. Rah, rah, rah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we'll be fine. Um, you know, a lot of us won't have seen a lot of our friends for almost two years. So there's going to be, you know, it's going to be a big hug fest, but, you know, it gives us the excuse to get some space from a few other people. So that's not always a bad thing. <laughs> no complaints there. Well, the interesting thing with rabbits is you guys haven't only had to battle with COVID restrictions, but you've had to battle with, um, like you said, Brian, RHD. I mean, that's, is that the disease that's kind of running rampant right now? 
Yeah, um, it's through a lot of the Southwest and the Western okay. states. Um, and the protocol right now is if a case is diagnosed, be that domestic or wild, everyone within a 150-mile radius of that case is cannot attend a show for, is it 60 or 90 days, Alan? 60. 60. And then in a 250-mile radius around that case, a show cannot be held. Um, so there are a lot of people that have been in, you know, by one case or another, been in these zones, like the people in Colorado for almost a year. And they're kind of going a little stir crazy. Of course, there is a vaccine in Europe. It's been imported into these states. The USDA has allowed it to come into these states where there is active infection. So there's people who have vaccinated their herds and they're ready to go out. But it's kind of contentious because it's state by state. So there are people in Colorado that really want to come to shows. And here in Kansas, we haven't had a case. We can't get the vaccine. All we can do is really just try to avoid it. So we don't really want them here. Um, (laughs) And it's, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for everybody because we understand that people aren't going to stick with this hobby if they can't show their animals. But, you know, we all want to protect our own as well. But that's opened up for virtual shows. I mean, I've heard you guys talk about that a couple of times when you're uh, from your episodes. The the rabbit industry has kind of embraced those as well as the livestock industry kind of went hand in hand. Yeah. Um, And with us, I mean, I don't know about livestock. I know there are some people that are able to get some titles on their dogs virtually. Um, None of these wins are quote unquote official. Like you don't get, you know, sweepstakes points or legs towards grand champion certificates or any of that. Um, But I think the people that were most at risk of leaving the hobby, it it wasn't the diehards. Like a lot of us have been out for a while or something's gone on. We haven't shown for a year or two here and there. We're fine. Um, But it's a lot of the newer people that we just need to really keep engaged. The people that really rely on feedback from judges to make decisions in their breeding programs. And they've been able to get that. And it's been really helpful for them. And I think, Brian, don't you think that the virtual shows on the rabbit side kind of stepped back a bit since shows have opened up, you know, in-person shows. I haven't seen very many online shows on, on Facebook as much, correct? Yeah, they're slowing down. I mean, there's still some that are um, rolling along, but they're kind of slowing down because more areas of the country are able to have shows. And, and we're just kind of getting into more, the more traditional show season, which is spring through most of the country. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess we started. We might as well. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, there's no way I can cut uh, that whole conversation out. So I guess, um, hey, everybody, this is Alan Mesnick and Bryony Smith. They host a new podcast called Best in Show, which is primarily about rabbit and cavies and maybe some engor goats, as Alan <laughs> has said before. My I'm, I'm still working my way into with Bryony on that one, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bryony's not about it. She just wants to stick to her uh, one true love. <laughs> so far. She's pretty dedicated. <laughs> yeah that's awesome um well yeah like we were saying i mean so rhd is calming down you guys have hot spots like briny said now on your end briny you work for the association right um well i don't work for it per se there's only actually one person that does our executive director and uh he's got office staff but um i'm um maintain a pretty large volunteer position yes a pretty large Alan, is she being like generous with that? Is she being She's humble about it? Being completely modest about it. She, <laughs> if I, I'll, I'll, I'll speak. I'll, I'll translate. Ready? She is the chairperson of the ARBA Standards Committee. So, 
the ARBA publishes a book every five years, which outlines what every breed should look like, both in rabbits and cavies. And it's a big book. Like it's, this is not some like paperback little thing that you can like slip in the backseat of your, 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 um, your backpack. Like this is a thick book and it's very yeah. detailed and it's different than if you come from a livestock background, you might not, um, you know, <laughs> appreciate the mass. No, we're going to get into this. Okay. But I'm just, okay. Here, all right, all right. I'll, we'll go in there, but I want to say that she chairs the committee that is responsible for that publication. And it's, it's an incredible amount of work. And it, she, this committee also oversees the recognition of new breeds and varieties, which is a very strict process, which Brian will go into, but she is totally being modest by saying she's got like this kind of volunteer job. No, it's like a, it's like a full-time job that she does not get paid for. <laughs> and she puts up a lot and she does an amazing <laughs> job at it. Wow. We are lucky to well, have her. Very lucky. Hats off to you, Brian. And well, a podcaster. Yeah. It's, I mean, this has been an, a, an incredible year. This Danner's committee chair, that was, has been my dream job since I was a kid. And then to start all this, it's like, wow. <laughs> so it's pretty you, much like you, the uh, uh, chief justice of the Supreme court. I mean, I don't know if Brian even likes that analogy, but it, it's the easiest one to say when we're explaining what the standards committee does and what her, her position is. She oversees a lot of big minds and a lot of big decisions. So in terms of it, this, this standard um, uh, publication, it gets revised every five years, you said? Yes. How, is there a lot of revisions that happen in five years? Um, actually, it depends. Um, sometimes there are large revisions that apply to every breed or even several breeds, as we had this year. Um, sometimes there are just some modifications to certain breed standards. Um, so any of those typically um, originate with a breed club standards committee. So each breed club has its own standards committee. They come up with ideas about improvements to their standard that may be you know, kind of tightening things up a little bit because the goal is to continuously improve and always raise the bar. Um, there may be something about, you know, maybe describing something a little bit better. Um, so it's more clear both to judges and, and exhibitors and breeders reading this. So we're all on the same page about what ideal is for this breed. And then the membership of those breed specialty clubs vote on these changes. And then those changes that are accepted by the membership are submitted to the ARBA Standards Committee. We vote on those changes. Um, anything that gets a two-thirds majority vote then goes to the ARBA Board of Directors, and they have to approve those changes. So there's really about three levels for a standard to change, and that can be you know anything from fairly minor grammatical changes to um, major changes in the way a breed is shown. And this this uh, the standard it's held in very high regard by basically everybody in the industry. Yeah, it's expected that everyone should own a standard. Okay. Yeah, and I would say that most people, I mean, I've never heard anyone say, oh, it's just a standard. Like, this is something that we all, whether we agree on, you know, what Minorex ear length should be, we, we all agree that the standard is our our go-to for what we're striving for as breeders, whether you're rabbits or KV. So it, it is very, it is held in very high regard. Well, we need to get you a paid position, Brian, because <laughs> agree. <laughs> this just doesn't make any sense to me. Um Go ahead. I'd be cool with that. I mean, <laughs> my job pays for for the rabbit stuff. I mean, I, I like it okay, but of you know. Course, yeah. No, I mean, it's your passion. You don't need to be paid to do your passion, but it definitely helps. So one thing I really wanted to touch on, and Alan was about to bring it up, was um, how different in terms of this, I guess we can say just the standard in general be between like, um, setting standards for livestock within the rabbit and KV industry or 
um, the dog and cat industry, the horse industry, and then the livestock industry. It's, it's very different. And the difference that I see, the biggest difference is how you become a judge. How you become mm-hmm. a judge is so very different in the livestock industry compared to these other ones because you guys have a set standard. You guys have a publication that's revised and renewed every five years telling all of the, all of the membership, this is how this is supposed to look, not any other way. Yes. And that's so interesting to me. I wish we had that. I, I wish we had that, but our industry just changes so much. Um, it's, well, and that's, that's a good, it's, I don't want to say, I, I use the word trend lightly, but I listen to livestock podcasts. I come from a little bit of a livestock background. So I'm familiar with those loose standards. And, you know, I, I remember hearing stories about short stock cattle in the early 1900s. And then there was a massive shift. And by the 70s and 80s, they were as tall as they could be. And it was only about height. And then they, you know, they, they knocked down and, and then they were short again. And now they're back up to some sort of moderate level. I'm, I, I'm, I know I sound really ignorant. I, I can't speak fluently no, you, about right beef cattle, but sounds correct to me. Those trends and the way that those cattle evolved did not hinge on something that was written down and in stone um, and modified. That was based off of either what the industry of livestock do have standards. I mean, gore goats, they have a standard for, for example. Um, and some breeds even have a licensing procedure for judges, not would it, not to my knowledge in, in beef cattle or in most market animals, but pygmy goats, they have a licensing procedure for their judges. Llamas have a licensing procedure for judges and dogs and cats. They have a licensing procedure. It's very rigid. In fact, AKC, their standards or their, their way of going about a judge license is much harder I mean, it, you have to be, I think it would be easier to become a brain surgeon than to become an AKC all breed licensed dog judge. It takes years because it's based off of your experience and it's very slow. So um, I think the Brian and I are very proud and people in our, our organization, the ARBA are very proud of our standards. And, and I, I never want it to think or be perceived as being stagnant because what Brian, does with her committee is to make sure that stagnation doesn't happen so long as the standards shift and change in a way that benefits the improvement of a breed, not taking them back and not based off of one person's opinion, but really the, the, like an act of Congress in, in some sorts to, to get people to agree on, um, you know, changing that written text. That said though, um, like you mentioned, there are some trends and changes and, you know, things that do affect our industry. I know that, since the 1980s, the whole depth of body thing has, you know, completely revolutionized kind of the way we look at most breeds. Um, and that really goes back to one legendary breeder, Fibber McGeehee, um, who promoted that. Um, but there was some um, market aspect to it, too. You know, the rabbits that had more depth of body had, you know, deeper loins, they carried more meat. But that really, you know, went through to every breed, even the ones that hadn't traditionally been raised for meat. Um, and there are always different interpretations of the standard. Um, there are certain things that, you know, one breeder will focus on and another breeder will focus on this different aspect. And they'll there kind of be different styles. But the standard does assign points to every um, aspect of the rabbit. Um, every breed assigns a certain number of points out of 100 to type, color, fur, and condition. They may have, you know, other things they assign points to, such as markings. 
Um, but that gives the relative importance of those factors. So there are times when you look at two factors that maybe have a pretty equal amount of points assigned to them. And this person believes that, you know, this factor is really more important. It's more hereditary. They're breeding an animal to this standard. And another person's maybe focusing a little bit on something else. And there can be a little bit of tension sometimes between breeders and within clubs um, about, you know, what is exactly right. But in the end, we do have it laid out. We do have, you know, a certain number of weight given to those traits. Yeah, it is. It's just such an interesting process. It, it has to be um, has to be well liked by an organized mind. That's for sure. I mean, it, it seems like the livestock we should. I know I said we can just because we have those trends and the marketplace kind of changes our trends, of course. But it'd be so nice if we just had a book that every single livestock judging kid or even any kid that wanted to show livestock could have it and say, Hey, here's what these look like. Even if we revised it, I mean, we could definitely do revisions every five years. There's gotta be somebody out there that can make a book about livestock Four species. It's not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> no, what you would think? think so, but I think that, <laughs> I think that livestock, uh, livestock is also a loosely used term because you have breeding animals you have purebred you have a purebred holstein show you have a purebred purebred hereford show and then you have on the the other side of the livestock barn when you go louisville for example i work on the i'm on the sheep committee and we are on the breeding sheep side there's a whole other barn dedicated to the market lamb side which is a group of crossbred composite sheep going for a a trendier more fluid um i'm not gonna say use the word standard but but way of 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 appearing right and you can speak canon more fluent on this than i can but in the breeding side of those sheep for example or the cattle they they tend to be don't you think more more constant for sure yeah it's definitely on on the breeding sheep i mean some of them, I mean, they're still blocking them out. I mean, it, right. it's still, they're still trying to keep the appearance of like, hey, this is also supposed to be a production deal too. We want them to be kind of large framed and I mean, I, and look like a white face sheep or whatever the breed is. But it is more of a beauty contest. In I think so. I the think breeding so. side. There's a lot think, more that you can do to kind of sculpt and clean yeah, and wash. It's, it is a total art. I am blown away by when I, when I work at Louisville every year and I see these people, they get there the second the door opens in the morning and they are there until the lights go out at night, clipping and, and primping and doing all these things. And by the way, this is something you may not know, but we don't allow that in the ARBA with rabbits and KVs. There can, there can be no alteration of appearance by clipping, by dying, by using, you know, kind of false or faux methods to, better look or better make an animal it's it's to be as genetic or an environmental in the, in the case of its surroundings but not by use of false um means does that make sense yeah and that's really um it's really disappointing to me because i really wanted to try my hand at being a rabbit fitter <laughs> oh there's still maybe a career out there for you don't worry Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> well i think too maybe that's one of the reasons that we tend to like having a written standard and we tend to like, you know, these specific detailed outlines as our hobby. And I have friends that show livestock. I'd never done it. 
we kind of spend a lot of time in our heads. You know, the mm-hmm. act of getting our rabbits ready for show or showing our rabbits, it really doesn't take much time. Um, unless you have angoras or something like that, then you spend a lot of time grooming, but that's a very few breeds. Um, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time preparing animals for show. You know, I clean their barn. I feed them. You know, yeah, I get them out. I work with them usually daily. You know, you remove a little loose fur. You get them used to the posing process, the the handling that goes on the judging process. But you're not spending that amount of time really working with and preparing that individual animal. Instead, you're spending a lot of time learning about what you need to do, watching those animals develop those traits, thinking about, you know, okay, even though this is a a young rabbit just ready to hit the show table, what am I going to breed this to to improve it? What else do I have coming up this year that I might keep to pair well with this to really bring the best traits out? So we do spend a lot of time in our heads thinking about those things because we have a a pretty quick generational turnover. I think that has a lot to do with it, don't you think, Bryony? The fact that you can make improvements without having to physically primp and and alter an animal. You do it, not simply, but you do it by genetics. And we we prosper on the fact that that turnover in in rabbits you know we we also kind of joke breeding like rabbits right well they don't really breed like rabbits but they do breed a lot faster than um a cow who takes what almost a year to have a baby and by the time the baby is able to be shown and be competitive anyway it's another year later so um, we can have four generations in that yeah right (laughs) yes right so there's a there's a heavy adherence to making those improvements by really being a master at, at breeding and selection And that starts early too. Um, You know, in most, the majority of kids that start, you know, in 4-H or FFA with livestock get one project animal, work with that animal, a lot of times auction it off. With rabbits, yeah, they'll start with one animal. But really the idea and what most kids do is start a breeding program pretty early on. Yes. And it's something that kids can afford to do. These are not... Well, in the time that Brian and I have been doing rabbits, the price of rabbits in, in KVs has greatly increased. But on the whole, they're they're far more affordable for young people to get into, and really anyone, but young people in particular that want to start a project and they can't afford, you know, a, a ten thousand um, dollar, you know, ram from this from the top breeder to to bring in and improve their their line of of sheep. Um, you know, you can, you can, kids can afford rabbits. I mean, that was my attraction back when I got in and I could buy rabbits for $50 and within, you know, a year I had made my own and, and made improvements on those ones that I bought. Yeah. It and is we a- do have a huge, we have a huge youth contingent in the ARBA and it's, we're all very proud of it. And both Brian and I are products of that. Yeah. It is, a, as you guys are talking about this, I, I'm, I'm just thinking like it's a good thing that you guys have a standard just because, and I know the breed like rabbits is a joke, but I mean, there's probably a lot of people that get that can get out there and ruin a lot of genetics if they don't have the right mindset. A- am I right on this? I mean, it, is that a reason for the standard as well, just to make sure that people are maintaining the characteristics that they need to maintain? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not just for judges. You know, like we talked about, it's expected that every breeder will own this and refer to it um, when they're going through and um, making those selections. I mean, you see a lot on social media, brand new breeders. What does, you know, XX mean? How do I evaluate, you know, density of coat in these litters? You know, they're asking for advice on how to do that, but they're using the standard as a guide. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid having my first litters of Dutch, you know, sitting there looking at them with a standard open, comparing the markings to the pictures in the standard. Um, so, yeah, that, it makes a big difference. It helps a lot. Um, you can quickly improve rabbits. If you make poor selections, you can uh, quickly, 
take a line uh, straight downhill as well. And we've both seen that. We've seen, you know, people get into rabbits, and I and this is I'm not I'm not knocking livestock, but we have seen people from the livestock side come to rabbits and and want to get their you know to try it if they've never done it before. And they're very smart, by the way. They 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 see a pathway a lot quicker than someone brand new in rabbits. And I've seen um, uh, people with those goals, you know, seek out the top breeder in every breed, which that's brilliant. That's how you should do it, right? And sometimes they will buy someone out. Like someone's been breeding, or say, we're just using just it's, it's a fake example, but say they've been breeding Holland Lops for 30 years and suddenly they want to sell out and they're done. They're retiring. Um, I've seen people come in and buy like an entire herd, like this <coughs> excellent top nationally competitive herd of Holland Lops and then not do what needed to be done with them um, because they think it's like a quick way to, to get in there and, and win. But it takes a lot more than, than just imagining how someone else was doing it before you. You have to really learn those animals. Yeah, that's a shame. And most animals show life is pretty short. So you do, you know, occasionally we will get requests from livestock parents who are doing, you know, what you do with livestock, which is come to a good breeder and say, hey, I need something for my kid to show. I want to buy something that's going to win. And and most rabbit people are going to kind of look at you like, um, <laughs> I can't really guarantee that. Um, you Where know, they it, say, I want to buy your best one. Show me yeah, your best and then, one. You're like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> The best thing to say is, hey, my kid's looking to get into this breed. Do you have some nice animals that you can start him out with? Maybe we'd like to show it fair this year. And that's really going to get the breeder to, you know, be engaged, want to, yes, set your kid up with something that will do well at the fair this year, but also teach him a little bit about that animal, maybe how to pair it, how to breed it, and get them started toward a breeding program. Right. It's, I think a lot of us would agree it's much more admirable to see someone young or or not young get into rabbits and ask those questions that Brian just said you know sell me something that will in your line that will breed well together so that I can make generational improvements and then have something of my own that I can put my name on it uh, in a year when I go to shows or, or even less than a year so we I think we really really admire that we don't when people come to us and say sell me your best one it's like okay well how serious are you and are you going to be around in a year probably not uh, yeah, yeah, those emails always went to file 13. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like meat? Do you like to grill? Do you like burning stuff over hot open flame? Are you wondering, Cannon, why are you talking like this? It's because I'm in an ad for United Harvest, okay? And this is my ad voice. This is what I'm trying to get you to do. I'm trying to get you to go to unitedharvest.com. Go buy some meat. Type in the promo code FRIENDS15 for 15% off your first order. Do you like meat? UnitedHarvest.com. Now, how many breeds are in the standard? 50. 50. How often are, I mean, how many breeds of rabbits are there in the world? Um, You know, I'm really not sure. There are um, several countries in Europe that have their own standards and they recognize their own breeds. Um, So I'd say, safe estimate, at least double that probably. Yeah, if not, how, if not more. How often do new breeds get introduced into the United States? Um, there's not really an average. Um, actually, we went for about 17 years between 1988 and 2006, where we had no new breeds introduced. There were some changes made to the acceptance process. It became a little bit more difficult. Um, 
But we also didn't have a whole lot of new breed applications during that time. But then it kind of opened back up. Um, the mini satins came in, which were a breed that was created here in the United States from an existing breed called the satin that's a larger animal. The mini satins were created to have that same kind of fur, which is a very reflective, um, very lustrous. We call it sheen. Um, it has a, a very unique coat. Um, these, those came in at the same time a breed called the Trianta came in, and those were an import breed from Europe. They're a rabbit with thick bone, um, very well-rounded head, a very stocky ear, and they're very, very bright red in color. Um, so since then, those were number 46 and 47. So since then, we've added um, three more. Um, one of those, the lion head, began as an import um, and then we bred them kind of to our standards and, and changed it a little bit. There are some notable differences between our standards and European standards. Um, the Argent Brune came in. That's another breed that is recognized in another country. I think they cited a standard from a club in Canada. And then most recently, the Dwarf Papillon came in, which is a direct import breed from Europe. Uh, now, Alan, I know you were working on importing a new breed. I was involved with the group that imported the dwarf papillon, so the breed that Bryony just spoke of that were accepted into our standard as the 50th breed at um, last fall. So that was in October of 2020. The breed was going through its final presentation. It takes Bryony can explain more about the process, but it's, it's a lengthy process to accept a new breed into our standard, regardless of whether you are a brand new breed made here or a breed that was imported from another country. It's still a, a, a lengthy process. The Dwarf Papillon was a breed that was already established for some time in Europe. We were at the World Rabbit Show in Metz, France in 2015. And when I say World Rabbit Show, that's a, a loosely termed show. It's world, they, they call it the world show, but it's really continental Europe and uh, the United Kingdom. Those are, those are the primary areas that have access to this show. And we saw them there. We had never seen them before. And we were like, what are those? Of course, we saw a lot of things we had never seen before, but these dwarf papians were very animated. They have these cute fat heads and um, they look similar to what we call a checker giant here, except that they're by no means a giant. They're, they're small. They're like, you know, four or five pounds. Um, and they're very animated. They're just bouncing around the cage. And we're like, oh my God, we have to have those. So um, group of friends and I imported them. I had been back. I went back to Europe a year later to import some from, Switzerland, and I took my my sister and my dad, my dad, who had never been to Europe, on a whirlwind trip over a period of four days. We flew into the United Kingdom, drove to Switzerland overnight, uh, picked up some dwarf papillons there, and then drove all night again to uh, France, where we had met. Thank you to Facebook uh, breeder um, in the um, Massif Central. It was a farmer, a, a cheese farmer, in fact, who was raising a lot of dwarf papillons, and he was so excited to help us in the United States make this breed possible. He basically sold us everything that we that he could so that he could continue on. But he, we bought most of his rabbits so that he could help us. It was just a, a, a very, very touching relationship that we had with him. And he sold them at a very affordable price. And of course, it's very expensive to import them. But then I, I rushed back up to the north and brought them all back. Um, and that, those were the basis for the breed that we now call the Dwarf Papillon recognized here in the ARBA as our 50th breed. So it was a fun process. My name was not on the on all the presentation, but I had a little bit to do with, with importing them. And it was a really fun process. And I got to watch my friends who worked really hard to, to, to bring these rabbits every year to the convention to go before the standards committee, which Brian is a, a big part of to, uh, you know, become part of that, what we call the standard of perfection. Now, Brian, on your end, what, I mean, what is that process like for you trying to, I mean, what is, what are the credentials needed to get into the standard and become a, a new breed? 
recognized in that in that publication. Okay, so it is at minimum a five year process. Um, we expect that people will have these breeds and will have been breeding these animals for a while to, you know, kind of establish a herd um, and a consistent lineage, uh, rabbits that consistently produce the same quality and good quality. So the first step is applying for what's called a certificate of development. And you send in a proposed standard to the ARBA um, that goes to both the office and the standards committee. The standards committee evaluates that. And really what we're looking for is we want to know that this breed um, is distinct. It's unique. Um, it's not just another, like another one of our breeds with a different fur structure or another one of our breeds with lopped ears. Um, it has to be its own unique breed. And then we evaluate the proposed standard and sometimes make recommendations for changes. A lot of times that's just to bring language uh, more um, into consistency with what we use the rest of the standard. Right now, we're actually working on that with a couple of breeds that are European breeds that have applied for certificates of development. Um, and that's because we want our judges to be able to understand what we're looking for when we get these animals on the table. So once that is approved and a certificate of development is issued, then under the new process, um, what's called a working standard, that original standard will be published to the ARBA website. Those animals are then eligible for exhibition at shows. Um, they're judged, you know, separately after the breed, usually at the end of the day. Um, but they compete against each other. The judges give feedback about them, um, which is very helpful. Now the breeders can get these animals out, start working on them, get some really meaningful feedback and, you know, see what each other is doing on the show table. Um, they have to hold that certificate for at least two years prior to September 1st before the convention, which I know sounds a little bit complicated. Um but they have to hit that two-year mark before September 1st, and the convention is usually mid-October. So after that two years, they must make what's called their first presentation. So they bring these animals to the convention, and the standards committee examines them. We look all over all of them to see, um, you know, do they have any general disqualifications, which we have a long list of those in the rabbit world. Anything from a broken tooth, a toenail that's the wrong color, a little white spot, any of those. Um, if the disqualification is found on any of the animals, the presentation is then failed. Um, if they pass, then, you know, they're issued a pass for the first presentation. They get two tries at each level of presentation. There's first, second, and third. So if they fail the first presentation, they get a second try at a first presentation. Um, then, you know, if they fail, if they pass one of those, then they go to a second presentation. They have two tries to pass that. And then they go to a third presentation. If they pass a third presentation, then they are officially a new breed. They have to do this all in five years. So they don't get two tries at every presentation. Um, for example, if it takes, you know, two tries at the first, two tries at the second, they've only got one try at the third presentation. Um, after a third presentation, when, again, they pass through the committee, we've examined them, we make sure they don't have any disqualifications, they are reasonably uniform, they meet the breed standard, we have seen improvement that we've requested year after year, um, because after each of these presentations, we sit down with the presenter, we give them the verdict, pass or fail, and then we ask them for some specific improvements in the breed. Maybe we want to see, you know, a little bit more density in the coat, maybe we want to see a little bit better color on the animals. And we evaluate next year to see if they have made those improvements. Um, but once they pass that third presentation, then um, the final step, again, is always to be voted on by the ARBA Board of Directors. And once they receive that nod, they are officially a new breed. Wow. <laughs> yeah, blown away, right? 
Wow. A five-year process. At no, minimum. No less. At minimum. Minimum. Yeah. minimum. And that's after, you know, establishing, working on establishing this breed in your own barn and probably getting some others to work with you because everything tends to be better as a group project. Were you in the process, Bryony, of uh, bringing on this new breed into the standard? No, I was not. Okay. And um, Alan, you said your name wasn't on the uh, at the uh, award or the ceremony or, or what, whatever you said, but you were in the process, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's not that. It's so Bryony quoted like certificate of development, so that would oh, have yes. a person's name or a group of people that are that are working on this this goal to accept a either a new breed or a new variety or what we also call color. Um, so now I was not officially involved, but um, I, like a lot of other people in the country, had them or were somewhat involved and got to see the process. And it's it's a very it's a very long one. It's a very detailed one. As Brandy just penned out. And by the way, the the dwarf papian did not make it in the minimum number of years. Like they were not just they did not roll from year to year and have a pass every year. They they had they had some issues. They had some bumps. And and Brandy did they took four years, correct? It wasn't it wasn't three. Um, the chocolates took three. The they, they um, applied three varieties at a time. Which each, if they come in in you know as multiple varieties or colors in their certificate of the development, that's a separate presentation for each color. So the chocolates did pass in three. They passed their first in 2018, second in 2019, and third in 2020. The blacks and blues both failed their first try at a second presentation in 2019 because um, rabbits in each of those presentations had um, budding teeth. So their teeth didn't quite overlap. And and that's all it takes on these things. Um, so most presenters spend a lot of time looking over these rabbits you know, daily to make sure there are no problems. When they get to convention, they ask friends, they ask judges, can you please look over these rabbits to make sure nothing's wrong? If you find something, you know, I maybe brought something I can substitute in. Um, so the blacks and blues are going to take four years minimum. They have their first try to third presentation this year in Kentucky. Oh, and, so only one was let in. Correct. Um, okay. Yeah. So that allowed them to be a breed with just one variety. But initially, three varieties were proposed um, in the initial certificate to have, you know, the, the first goal was to have the breed recognized with three different varieties. In the end, only one variety was a capable of being on that new breed that was chocolate, but the black and blue varieties will just be a year behind provided they, they pass this year. So it's very lengthy. And, and I, I, I would equate, I, first of all, I think that that process is much stricter than any other rabbit association in the world when it comes to getting rabbits recognized or cavies recognized into a standard. I would equate other countries and particularly Europe um, with more of a livestock way of getting things allowed. Okay. So when we think about livestock here, I'm going to use the North American Louisville show, for example, if a new breed of sheep, for example, wants to be accepted into the, the, the open sheep breeding barn, right? They have to have a certain number of animals shown to be sort of on a probation period. So for example, say this is a brand new breed of sheep and people want to come in and, and show them they have to meet a certain number then to qualify for an entry at the North American. And that's just one livestock. Of course, it's a very big one, but that's how they get their foot in the door. They don't actually have to be overseen by, um, a, you know, a, a parent body organization of, of sheep to allow them in, into the show. In Europe, uh, I'm going to use United Kingdom as, a, as an example, the BRC, that's British Rabbit Council, for rabbits to be recognized that are brand new, they have to come over and they have to show a certain number of these this new breed 
at their their big show, their Bradford show, their London show, I believe it is, which happens just once a year. It's a, like our convention equivalents to the Airbnb. And these breeders have to show, basically shows interest. It shows intent to, you know, once this breed is recognized by the BRC, the British Rabbit Council, that they will continue and be sought after and bred and and continued on. It's not just going to be like this brand new fad and they're going to be in that they're going to be in the book and then they're going to, you know, go into extinction that, that there is a general interest by people in that country to perpetuate them. So um, it's a, it's more of a numbers game. Um, then they have a standards committee as well that oversees them and, and looks at quality, but, but numbers and intention are heavily weighted in England versus here where, yeah, there's intention, there's numbers and you have to meet those too. But, but a very strict adherence to written text, that's our standard, um, is, is first and foremost. Now, is, is speaking internationally about rabbits, it, it seems like from what you guys have talked about that um, there's large communities in America and there's large communities in Europe. Is there any other um, kind of expansion in terms of the rabbit industry uh, internationally and in other continents? Uh, yes. And Brian and I are both involved in that. We've been very fortunate over the years to be involved in that. Uh, in the late nineties, Japan, um, uh, started to have a very sincere interest in show rabbits and they were very grateful for this. It chose the ARBA as their model, um, for their breeds that they were going to have at shows and they chartered clubs in the early two thousands, late nineties. And then oh, it was what, seven or eight years later that Thailand, uh, followed suit and these breeders were actually coming to the United States to attend shows, particularly our, our ARB convention because they're so big. And if they're going to buy rabbits to bring back to their countries, the convention is no better place to do it because there's, there are more of them. There's people from all over the country there. So the, the, the best quality is at this convention every year. So uh, soon after Thailand uh, took suit, they chartered clubs with the ARBA. And then an interesting thing happened. It, well, two things happened. Um, which really helped the, I call it the, the Asian diaspora in ARBA. Um, 2011 was the year of the rabbit, the Chinese year of the rabbit. And every rabbit judge in the ARBA got an email, there were like 300 of us, got this email from Singapore, and we all thought it was a joke, that said, we're putting on a rabbit show at the mall. It's year of the rabbit, and we want one of you to come over and, and judge these rabbits for us in the mall and to teach people for the next 10 days about rabbits in Singapore. And a lot of us replied, right? <laughs> like, like, oh, okay, yeah. Even if we thought maybe it was a fault, like it was a hoax, but we were like, okay, well, let's see where this goes. I was very fortunate enough to be that judge. It wasn't a hoax. And I went over to Singapore in, in February of 2011. And for 10 actually miserable days, <laughs> I was in Suntec city in the middle of Singapore, which is a really small country with a lot of people. It's, it's a city state. It's about 40 miles long at the base of the Malaysian peninsula. And uh, it's a primarily a Chinese population. So I talked about rabbits for 10 days in the middle of a mall on a, on a Britney Spears style microphone. And I did judge, uh, kind of my own way. It wasn't ARBA, but people from other countries in Southeast Asia attended that event. Um, Malaysia was the first, and it wasn't six months later that Malaysia was hosting an ARBA sanctioned show and chartering clubs. And then after that, Indonesia followed suit the year later. I was lucky enough to be at both of those very first shows. And then after that, we did have shows, uh, sanctioned shows and chartered clubs in Singapore. And then thereafter, Philippines, they're the, they're the newest of the group. They had a show in 2018, I believe. And I was also fortunate enough to be the, the ARBA judge along with Ari Wardhani from Indonesia to attend there. And what's really cool is that these countries in Southeast Asia look to the ARBA as the model organization for their shows. 
and for the breeds that they would select to allow, you know, to be shown there. So they, they could have gone to Europe, they could have gone to the United Kingdom. And, and then some, in part, some part they did, but they chose our system because it's, I, I believe it's because it's so, it's rigid. Like you can, and you can read it in a book. It's not, there's not a really real gray area about how, what we do is, is, is done. So, um, and since then a lot of breeds have, have been exported to Southeast Asia and the shows are, are really popular there. In fact, now we have our very first two licensed ARBA judges, both Asian born, um, a first being Ari Wartani. Arabia judge number 979. She is in Jakarta, Indonesia, and she traveled to the United States to go through that very lengthy, detailed process of becoming a judge. Um, she was a, a, a real pioneer in Asia, and now they don't have to hire one of us to come over when they do shows. Of course, they still do, but she's there on a local basis, so she can fly around Indonesia and into Malaysia and Philippines and, and judge, uh, and rabbits can earn legs, and, and shows can function there just like they do here. And then not long ago, uh, Masako, I can't say her last name. <laughs> She's from Osaka, Japan. She's the president of the Nippon Rabbit Club. She also licensed. And we have one more uh, in Malaysia who's almost done with his process. So the Asian ARBA is very real. It's very, very fast growing. And Bryony, um, she needs to share some stories too, because she and I both love going over there. It's like, I, I equate it to being at my very first rabbit show because the excitement and energy with these breeders is, is so infectious. And they're just, they're like sponges. They want to learn and they want to do better. And they want to, they want to make better rabbits. And they, you know, they, they envision, they dream one day of being able to compete with us, which international borders and COVID now, gosh, I don't know if they'll ever really be able to do that, but um, they, they do, do, do dream and aspire to, to have our standards. It's, it's really cool stuff. Well, and this is where Alan's being kind of modest because he has put countless amount of hours into helping these clubs get started, helping people translate all these things, helping people, you know, understand these processes, set up shows. And um, he's one of our bigger exporters. He has sent many, many shipments over to Asia, has found rabbits to fill requests. Um, Alan has probably more than anyone um, connected us to each other um, between the U.S. and Asia. And it's it's really been wonderful. I've been fortunate to um, have gone to Malaysia several times. I've been to Indonesia as well. And they're very excited to learn whatever we're willing to teach them. Um, but on the other hand, I always say I, I get more than I leave there when I go because there is that just pure enthusiasm and love for the hobby. And it's easy to get a little jaded here sometimes. You know, we go to shows every weekend. Um, people will complain about kind of relatively small things. There are very few shows over there in a year with ARBA judges, maybe one or two. So everyone wants to be there. Everyone's happy to be there. If there are little glitches that goes along, people smile and work through them. Um, so it really just, you know, it kind of renews your faith in the hobby. And sometimes when we kind of need it the most. Um, but we've made, you know, wonderful friends, enjoyed a lot of wonderful food, Um been to so many places in the world and and it's just incredible to think that all of this is because of rabbits this is all because i started with rabbits in 4-h that's pretty crazy yeah. and the yeah. rabbits there make a lot of sense because you know in singapore especially these are people living in 50-story buildings you know people are living on top of each other and at the same time they love animals and you can't just raise dogs in an apartment there you can't just you couldn't certainly raise livestock but rabbits made a lot of sense in Southeast Asia where there are a lot of people and not a lot of space because, and when we prosper on that too, a lot of us don't have a lot of property. I'm fortunate to have a farm, but a lot of people that have rabbits here in the United States don't have a traditional style farm. They keep rabbits in their garage or in a shed in the backyard and stacking cages. And you can, you can 
do a lot with a small amount of space. And I think that that's why that's one of the magic components of why rabbits really are continuing to boom and grow across Asia. It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, now that you put it that way and it's got to get you guys just fired up and pumped about the future of the industry. I mean, once all this stuff clears away, the uh, uh, RHD and COVID, I mean, you guys have to be pumped to continue to grow that market and, and develop more breeders down there and judges. Like you said, I mean, to think that there's two people that have come over here from Asia and gone through the process to be a rabbit judge. I mean, that's, that pumps me up, honestly, that's pretty incredible. It's cool. And I, I was, I've, I've stepped back a little bit over the last year. It's been a little little bit therapeutic for me to step back and not, not be running ragged going to shows every weekend. Um, So I hadn't been as close to my Asian friends as I had been, you know, checking up on them. And, but we interviewed Ari Ward Honey, the judge from Jakarta last week. And uh, she's a great friend. It was so good to catch up with her. And I said, you know, are you judging? And she goes, yeah, in fact, I judged the show last weekend and I'm going to judge one this week. And, and by the way, there are 400 rabbits at the show, which is a lot. Wow. Um, when we judge rabbits here, we're expected to judge no more than 250 in a, in a day. And then there, there's some, some laws that go into, you know, if we can't even do those, but whatever, but there she's like, she's the only judge at this show. She had to go through all 400 of them herself. And she said, Oh yeah, we stopped around 10 PM. It went all day, but I, I loved hearing that. I'm sorry for her because she was, you know, wiped out on her, on her, on her back. And like, like, Oh my God, I've got to do this next weekend too. But it was a testament and a, and a truth that they are not holding back at all. Like that ARB interest there is still growing and they are as hungry as we are to have shows and they're, and they're back doing it. It's really cool. And thank God we have Ari there to, to help fill that void because we can't travel there as easily now during, uh, during this time of COVID. And we have to yeah. remember, too, they have learned this standard. They have taken tests over the standard. They have had eight judges evaluate them over their knowledge of this standard that is not in their first language. Exactly. And they got it. And they did and it. And they got it. And they yeah. did it, yeah. And yeah. it's highly, it's pretty technical language. Like a lot of the terms we use, uh, uh, other English speakers, we have to, you know, explain it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not just textbook English. It's a little bit of rabbit and cavey in there, too, that are terms that you don't find if you just open the dictionary. You're right. It's, 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 a, it's a different language on a top of being a different language. And, and those ladies are, they're total pioneers in, in, this, in this frontier. It's, it's, we're so proud of them. Well, it shows how infectious uh, this passion is for, I mean, small stock in general. Like you said, it's, it's easy for people to get into at the beginning. It's easy for people to kind of maintain. Um, and definitely if they want to breed their own stock, it's, it's gotta be easier than raising pigs or raising sheep or something like that, just because you can have them in small, smaller confined spaces. So it, There's a, it makes a lot of sense to me. That's a little bit of a farce too. And I, I thought that the same thing, but I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier for me to take care of my 60 Angora goats every day than it is to take care of 60 rabbits because every <laughs> rabbit has its own cage. You know, with oh, goats okay. or livestock, they're out in a big pen for the most part. There are several That's pens, fair. but and you feed them all at once in a in a feeder. And before you, you know, I'll be like, I'm away, I'm like rushing out the door to go to the airport to fly somewhere to judge. I mean, I just chuck a couple flakes of alfalfa in each feeder, and I can be done in ten minutes. Where to take care of a, a a barn of rabbits, even a small barn, it's much more intense because every animal has its own cage, its own source of water, its own food source, and it does take time. And then to, to yeah. clean it, it's 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 a little underrated in terms of the amount of time that actually goes into it. 
I was waiting till I offended one of you with it. <laughs> no, you didn't have to work. <laughs> no, I'm messing around. I know. I know. No, but that makes a lot of I mean, you got to eat one in each cage or uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Let's, um, let's tell the people about your podcast before they just tune out and say what, what's happening here. So you guys started a podcast called Best in Show um, where you co-host and you guys are interviewing um, kind of the industry leaders uh, or uh, judges of the rabbit industry so tell me tell me a little bit either one of you why you guys wanted to do it why it was needed and uh, what your goals are Bryony, take it away you have a great voice <laughs> Bryony, i believe in you <laughs> well for me this whole idea it started a long time ago and it didn't even have anything to do with the podcast um like i talk about in one of our episodes Several of the judges went to dinner after a show one night, and one of our exhibitor friends came with us, and we sat around doing what we do, which is tell judging stories, you know, talk about rabbits we saw that day, talk about, you know, old stories, things that we've learned from other people, you know, just just BS for a while. And our exhibitor friend was really quiet. And then, you know, we got to the point where we're like, yeah, yeah, we should probably go and stop camping out at this table. And we looked around for our server because, you know, they hadn't been by with a check, and she just smiled and said... I paid for everyone. I enjoyed this so much. I just wanted to thank you guys. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I had no idea that was so interesting to people. And, and so that kind of, you know, sparked a little something. And I went to some other shows and watched people, you know, just enjoy sitting with the judges at lunch and telling those stories. So I thought there's, there's gotta be a way to, to tell these stories. And then, you know, podcasts came along. I kind of got interested in them then COVID happened and, you know, I was working at home where we're very disconnected and I started thinking, well, you know, maybe this is something we should do. I, I, I'm not shy. I'll say anything to anybody. Um, <laughs> and, and someone had suggested it a couple of years ago. So I, you know, went up to Alan and I'm like, have you ever thought about maybe starting a podcast? And he was like, yes, yes, I actually have. <laughs> <laughs> and of then, course, I can see, I, I can tell in his voice, he was ready for one. Oh, totally ready. And our, some, our stories are very similar. We both had that appreciation for those stories and that, you know, shows are busy. We have oftentimes now double or triple shows. Actually, we all, we always have at least double shows. That's, you know, rabbits are being judged at least twice per day. It's a busy day and sometimes more. We don't get those chance, those opportunities to sit down at lunch with everyone. The show doesn't stop for everyone to sit together. And we talked about this early on in this podcast um, about that community level that we really appreciate in rabbits and cavies in the RBA. And we don't have that much anymore. So, and and this year more than any, we don't have the chance to, to see each other or hear each other. And I got hooked on podcasts around the same time. And I bumped into some livestock podcasts, which I still listen to. And I was like, gosh, why aren't we doing this in rabbits? Um, this is a great way to not only bring people together and share stories, but also to educate because even within stories of people that veterans that have been doing this for a long time, there are lessons to be learned and knowledge to be shared. And this community above any that I've ever bumped into is more willing to take people under their wing and share those, those anecdotal pieces of, of their past, their experience to help better the current and next generation. There's, it's very, a very, very caring group. And we are very hopeful that this podcast does it. In fact, that we, what do we say, Brian? We we're here to inspire, educate, and entertain and inspire entertain. Yes. So, and it's been really fun so far and we can't wait to keep going. 
We've well, had a blast. Like, I, I can't believe what people will tell you if you just ask. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Like, most of them are, are not as shy as I feared that they would be. Um, but I think the other side of it for me was kind of in the middle of all this thinking about, you know, how do we tell our stories? Within about a week of each other, I lost a couple of my mentors, and it really hit me. Um, the last time I had seen one of them was at a show at a lunch table, and we'd had one of those wonderful times telling stories. And I thought, those are gone now. We have to get some of this, you know, because our mentors are getting a little older and we need to capture these stories and we need to share them. And we have the, the technology now to do it. You know, it it's not something that's written down or, or not written down at all. This We have technology that makes it easy. I mean, we're able to do this. Uh, Brian is in Kansas. I'm here in California. Canon, you're there in Arizona. I mean, and we're able to just sit down at an evening and then we have we've had Ariane, for example. She was in it was morning where she was when we interviewed her, but we have we have the capability now to easily connect people through technology. And I think one of our early challenges will be getting uh, rabbit and KV people on podcasts because that's still somewhat new in our community, but certainly not impossible. And we've we've had a lot of people, as Brian said earlier, like, what's a podcast? you know, but they quickly learned that uh, they're accessible and free. You don't have to pay for this. They can listen wherever they are. I think, both Brian and I envision and really hope that people listen to these podcasts during the week when they're hungry for rabbit show or maybe on their way to a rabbit show when rabbit shows and KB shows start opening up again, that maybe they're going to listen to them on those early morning drives uh, somewhere in this country, going to that show and in a car with maybe their friends or their parents or, or not, maybe they're just going alone, but this will keep people uh, together at a time when we need it most. With that uh, being said, check out the best in show on Apple podcast, Spotify, Google play, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and Alan, Briny, I really appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy schedules to talk with me. And uh, I'm glad we, I learned a lot about the rabbit and KV industry tonight. Um, and I really did. I wanted to try to get my listeners to learn a little bit too about it, because it is one thing that when we're at a show, like we said earlier, it's, it's two different communities. It feels like, I mean, we're not really interacting unless one of your friends is judging or showing a rabbit to sell back at the auction because they heard it gets a lot of money. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that was the big thing in my County fair. Kids were like, Hey, you can show a rabbit and sell it at the auction. And they give you the rabbit back to show it again. <laughs> right. We, we so appreciate this opportunity to be on here and to share with your guests, your livestock listeners, our side. And, you know, we are all facing the same challenges in our society and our culture now where the mass population doesn't understand agriculture. They don't understand where our meat comes from, where our, our vegetables come from. They don't come from the refrigerator. And there's probably also never been a time where we all, as whether you're large animal or small animal, need to come together to support and embrace each other because the challenges, unfortunately, are probably only going to get stronger um, working against people who are breeding, showing, making animals uh, for meat or show an, or otherwise. Um, so now is the time where we all need to, uh, you know, <laughs> put our differences aside and and work together because we actually do and and have shared the same goals all along. If, you know, people at our livestock show and their rabbits too, come over and say hi. We are Absolutely. always happy to talk about our animals. You'll be surprised at what you learn and how much there really is in common. You know what? I'm going to take that uh, advice and I'm going to run with it. The next county fair I go to or a show that I go to where I see some rabbit people or some small talk people, I'm going to say, hey, I I know some of your kind. Okay? <laughs> so we, we're, we can be friends. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, we'd guys, love to take you around again. and show us all of our rabbits. <laughs> oh, please! I'm going to come to national convention at some point. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. This year, oh, Louisville! That doesn't sound like a yeah. bad time at all. You yeah. got it. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you guys later. Have a good night. Thanks for Thanks, coming Ken. on. You too. Thank you. Good night. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. A little bit different pace than what we're usually doing here on the show, but I thought it was very interesting. And, it, I mean, it correlates to everything else that we're talking about in, in any other industry. I mean, they have the same problems. They go through the same uh, hassles most of the time. And, and like we said, we're, the livestock and the rabbit people or small stock people might be separated at shows, but I think we should be coming together more and more, especially when these activist groups are kind of coming down on the whole lot of us. It's probably best to just stick together. Uh, there's definitely strength in numbers, that's for sure. So stick around. Uh, next week we'll have another great episode. I have a, an executive chef, a celebrity chef kind of basically. I mean, it's, it's actually a really good interview. It's pretty sweet. He, I don't know if he likes to be called a celebrity chef, but he is a professional chef, traveled around the world, uh, cooked for celebrities and stuff like that. And we'll talk, you'll get to hear that in the interview. Uh, but that will be another great episode coming next week. With that being said, that's all I have for you this current week. See y'all later. Be safe out there. Love each other. Love one another. Um, love yourself. I love you.